Successful brands are rooted in purpose and driven by the potential to make a positive impact on their customers. Welcome to The Pursuit of Purpose with Amy Austin. Each week, Amy brings you practical advice to embrace the power of purpose in all aspects of your business and transform it into the central storyline for your branding and marketing strategies. This week's episode is sort of a highlight reel. As I mentioned last week, I've spent some time looking at the most popular episodes. And what I found is that my underlying goal for the show is apparent in these interviews. My intention has always been to showcase conversations that either highlight individuals who are living their purpose and how they got there, or those who understand the underlying importance of intentionality with business decisions and how connecting those decisions to the business purpose is critical. What you'll hear now are snapshots from seven episodes that when brought together, take you on a journey of purpose, strength, and how incorporating those into your brand and storytelling efforts reap many rewards. The links for each episode will be included in the show notes. And if you haven't listened to these individual episodes in their entirety, I hope you'll go back and do that. So, Melissa, tell me a little bit about what started you down the path of finding your why. What was the catalyst that made you realize that something was missing or was off or that you needed to become a little bit more in touch with that deeper rooted purpose that we all have, but we often don't recognize or understand even how to harness it? So I would say the the moment that changed for me was when I went into my first leadership role and I understood that I need to learn more about myself. If I'm going to lead people, I need to understand more about myself and I need to have a better understanding of who am I <laughs> at the end of the day? Like that's, that's the hardest part is who am I? And then understanding, okay, well, what can I do? Like, what are my strengths and what are, what am I good at? And, and how can I lead these people? I went from being like the expert and I know what I'm doing. And I've been doing this for many years to having a conversation where my boss's boss sat me down and said, Melissa, I'm not hiring you for the job you apply for because I think you should be a leader instead. And I said, yeah, no, why would I want to manage people? <laughs> it was like this reality check for me saying, look, never, never had I imagined it. And he invited me to think on it and to think on it, to think on it. And that's when I started asking myself these questions. Well, what does that mean? And how can I do that? And I have this passion for people and I have this passion to help people. And that's what I've always done in any job that I've had before is I always view myself in service to others. So when he proposed the idea, it turned and it turned and it turned. And I said, okay, I'm, I'm going to do this. I, I can do this. I was very nervous though, because I never did things that pushed me out of my comfort zone at that point. I never wanted to step into a role that was more in the spotlight. I was very afraid to do that. I didn't want to garner any extra attention. And so what I did is I did a lot of research. That's what I do when I'm unsure about something. I start looking online. Google and I were buddies. And mm -hmm. I'm, I'm online and I'm, I'm looking up what I can do. And so I started searching online. Okay, well, leadership, like leadership today. How do I lead people? <laughs> like, what is it? How do I do this job that he's convinced that I can do and I don't see it? It's always interesting how people can see in us what we can't see in ourselves. Oh my gosh, it was eye-opening. 
to the point where like at one point we had a conversation because he became a mentor and he said to me he's like well what have you got to lose to like try it out and the perfect position came up in that it was a temporary position so if i didn't like it i could go back to my old role and if i liked it and they wanted to keep me then i could so i said okay this is like best case scenario i can really try it out and see if i liked it and two weeks after starting the job i sent him a message and i was like you are so right. I love it. It was like nothing I had ever done before. And so when I was doing all that research, I stumbled across Simon Sinek for the first time. His way of speaking and his mentality of what leadership is and what it can be and how we can actually create these environments around us where people can feel safe and fulfilled, like that connected to my inner voice where I all around me, I've always wanted to say, well, that's what I'm doing. I'm showing up in service to others. And so he gave me the words to explain that. At the same time, I stumbled on Brene Brown. I found that her works gave me the actual how-tos in, in when I'm in those difficult situations, when it's dicey for me to say, do I have the guts to actually stand up and do this? Like she gave me the, the tools I needed to do that. And so he had like the vision and the mentality, and then she brought to me like the tools. And so together, they're my, my guideposts that I use all the time. It's a powerful combination. I use them often myself, both of them. And, you know, as you were talking about you leaning into this leadership role, Simon's quote of people don't buy what you do, they buy why you do it, yeah. kept surfacing in my brain of you were on the mission to find out, to be able to answer that why. Because why should somebody want to follow you as a leader if you don't understand yourself why you should be the leader? And, and when you have that buy-in, it becomes so much more clear. To address your question of how do you help people or how do I help people leverage who they are, first, it's doing exactly what you were uncertain of, and that's helping them understand how their talent manifests itself in their life. And so the thing that a lot of people don't understand is, so your number one talent is woo. So if we lined up five, 10, 15 insight descriptions of people who have woo in their top five, they would not read the same description. So there are very general descriptions that people are aware of, right? But the way that your woo manifests itself in your life is very unique to you. And so one of the first things that we do is have clients underline or highlight the words or sentences that most resonate with them. And so the thing that's interesting is your other, your sequence of strengths will have an impact on how all of your top five play out in your life. And so to leverage who you are, you first have to understand how it plays out in your life. So for instance, two people with futuristic, one might be more an internal vision of the future where they spend time thinking about it, visualizing it in their head, where someone else's is more of a verbal expression of being able to cast vision for the future. And so you have to know that so you can do it, mm -hmm. right? So it doesn't become a strength until you've taken action on doing the very thing that you've been gifted to do. So it's raw when you first learn about it, unless you've already had years of practice 
playing it out. And so the other thing that I find is a lot of people, especially because they're oftentimes associated with people who are very different than them, there's what we call barrier labels that are assigned to each strength. And so sometimes we squash who we naturally are because someone around us has verbalized the barrier label to us. So I know you have Wu Mm -hmm. as your number one. And so people who have Wu love meeting new people. Right. And I know that's you. I do. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and you know so many people in the community. You could walk into so many stores, right, and and meet a handful of people. And and that fuels you. I've been in the Mall of America and found people (laughs) that I know. And you have no problem going out going up to them, breaking the ice, right? Starting to dive into conversation, building rapport with those people. You're a great networker, right? And so that is who you naturally are. But on the flip side, there's people who are very intimidated by that. And so if their woo is bottom of the barrel, right? If that is so low for them, they're going to assign a barrier label to you that is a misperception of who you are. And so they're going to assign a weakness to you or a label to you that devalues who you were created to be and what your gift is. And if they verbalize that to us, for some people, you know, sometimes it could be a spouse, right? Or a sibling or a good friend, you know, could verbalize, you know, gosh, you're so superficial, Or why do you have to talk to everybody? You know, if their strength is to only talk to a few people or they're very intimidated or challenged by breaking the ice and going and talking to everybody in the room, now instead of saying, gosh, I love how Amy can go talk to everybody and she can build a connection with everybody. Now all of a sudden they're assigning a barrier label to you. And if that's verbalized to you, you could squash that and say, what's wrong with me? oh my gosh, like I need to just sit at this table. But internally it's draining you because you get energy and give energy when you are able to connect with people and you have communication number two. And so you pair those two together. You have charisma. You are easy to talk to, right? Right. And so you pair those two together and you're doing incredible things with people. But if somebody close to you is devaluing that and verbalizing it or making you feel like you should not do that anymore, you're not going to be thriving. You're not going to be leveraging who you were created to be. And I can think of a few times when that has happened. And And how did it make you feel? Made me feel like I wasn't being authentic to who I am. Right. They think you're fake or shallow or you're not genuine. That's why the, the phrase, your strengths are your stories, is really important to me. That's something that I use when I'm coaching. I could tell people, oh, I have adaptability in my top five strengths. Most people won't understand what that means. And they certainly won't understand it in the context of the rest of my top strengths or in the context of whatever job I'm trying to do or the interview I'm trying to, to win to get a job. So instead of saying, these are my top five strengths. I tell a story that demonstrates those strengths. Right. And that's what I encourage my coaching clients to do, especially if they're trying to get a new job, if they're in the interview phase, if they are just struggling with figuring out who they are and their identity. We look at their strengths. I ask them for stories like that. Like, tell me about 
a time when you were really adaptable. Tell me about a time when, or when you went to the grocery store yesterday, tell me the story of going to the grocery store. And even something as basic as that, you can kind of see where your strengths show up. Right. Well, and I think too, it's important to be able to pinpoint ways that those strengths are showing up in your life and be able to recount that because one, not everybody is well-versed in strength finders. And so they don't know what activator means or Mm -hmm. what, I mean, for a long time, I didn't really get what adaptability or individualization meant for me. It was, you know, it was just one of those things where I was like, okay, yeah, I'm not a hundred percent sure what that means. But when you can identify with something that you've done, an action that you've taken, that is a reflection of, for me, individualization, let's say, now I understand it and appreciate it at a level that I wasn't able to before. And if I'm not, and then I'm able to use that and leverage it. Exactly. Exactly. Apply it to everyday activities. Exactly. But I'm also able to explain it to somebody else or be able to use that, like going back to the example you were saying of if I was in an interview, I'd be able to tell a story or share an example of how I leverage that without ever saying this is me being adaptable or, or me exhibiting individualization. Exactly. Exactly. The way that I do this in like a keynote session that isn't about StrengthsFinder is I'll say, so I can tell you I'm a really good cook. I can say I'm smart. I can tell you I'm a great driver. But if I'm standing here in front of a group of people, are you going to believe me just because I said that? Of course not. But if I tell you a story about the, the pizza that I made the other night, my husband and I installed a wood-burning pizza oven in our backyard because we're serious about our pizza. Mm-hmm. And I figured out how to make the perfect Tuscan pizza crust, Tuscany-style pizza crust at high altitude, which is tricky, let me tell you. <laughs> so, I'm um, sure. <laughs> I, and I can tell you about the, I can tell you a story about baking pizza and the, the toppings I put on it, the brown butter with sage that I made and put it on the pizza crust and the way that it came out of the oven with the bubbled edges. and Now this isn't fair. It's almost lunchtime and you're telling me this. <laughs> and capers because as my friend recently told me, capers are the bacon of the fruit world or something like oh, that. Okay. Capers, <laughs> you know, they make everything better. And I can tell you this story. And when I do this at a keynote, I look around and I'm like, okay, now you're all hungry, right? Mm-hmm. So do I need to tell you I'm a good cook after I tell that story? No. Of course not. You're going to decide that for yourself. Even if you don't like capers, you're going you're gonna to see the story with the visuals that I've created. And you're going to see the passion with which I speak mm-hmm. about cooking. And you're just going to trust me that I'm a good cook. Exactly. So tell me a bit about obstacles that, that your clients run into when it comes to creating that killer message. What are the things that, that you see that just repeatedly come up as a barrier for them to be able to get really clear on that message that they're trying to create? Sure. The the number one thing, and this is an easy answer. The number one thing is context. 
it's it's and this uh, again dives into the audience research and the importance of understanding how your audience speaks it's it's i say a lot don't understanding your audience isn't enough become your audience context is the missing piece you know you hear so much about the really the problem solution approach to messaging and that used to work but it doesn't work alone anymore um, people think it does but it does when you're already addressing an audience that has that problem and is looking for a solution excuse me hit the mic and is looking for a solution but your entire target audience includes people that are unaware they have a problem and if they're unaware they have a problem and you're just marketing or selling the problem then you're not hitting that that audience because they don't think they have a problem context is what brings it in context is that's that piece that builds the trust that's that piece that pulls people in and it can be something like if i'm thinking about the drill bit thing picture this you're you you have an incredible stash of Hershey bars from around the world. You're to, to keep it safe from the, the fingers and the bellies of your kids, you put it up high on a shelf where you know they'll never look, you know they'll never find it. But what you didn't know is your four-year-old saw you go up there and sneak one the other day when you didn't think they were looking. And when you're not there, what happens when he starts to climb up the shelf? And then, you know, yep. enter, enter, blah, 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 drills help you, you know, help you secure your, your shelving so that your kids are safe from harm. Yep. So well, when that stash is identified. <laughs> exactly. So the context, now I'm speaking to people with little kids. That's really, my market is people with little kids that have furniture in, mm -hmm. in that example. Maybe people with Hershey bar collections, who knows? <laughs> but, but that, you know, if I were to start with the problem and just say something like, you have shelves and they're not, they're not as secure as they could be, improve the safety by blah, blah, blah drills, that doesn't go as far. Right. It's missing the context. Whereas well, it's missing the impact of well, that's and that's what context yeah. does. That's what context does, because now all of a sudden it's. I'm going to take a slight detour. So when I I talk about messaging for to have that killer message, it has to be three things. It has to be clear, it has to be compelling, and it has to be convincing. And without the context up front, it's the killer C's. Look at this. Without mm -hmm. the context, without that context up front you're not going to be compelling and you're not going to be as convincing for the entire range of your audience. We tell people all the time when we're looking at um, websites and we see that something is extremely like a website's very text heavy and they don't have any video to complement it. As just a society, our attention span is next to nothing anymore. And people look for that easy click to understand fast who you are and what you do. And, you know, they don't want to read essays anymore. And that's just really, we feel like that's just the way of the world. And so video, like Matt said, it's, it's 
been around and people have been using it to support and build up their brand, but I think it's just becoming clear, even, you know, this crisis and beyond. It's a faster and, and I would argue more efficient way to creatively express who you are to your audience. And it's what people are looking for. The interesting thing about that too is, you know, there's a lot of studies out right now that show people want that higher level of quality if they can get it because we're just, I mean, we've just become as a society more accustomed to, to having it everywhere we go on our phone, just getting a higher level of video quality. Keeping that in mind as you're doing some brand building is, you know, you don't want to chase people away with consistently bad quality videos. I mean, like we talked about, it's okay to have organic and content and shooting with your cell phone and things like that. But if you're consistently putting out videos that are of a low quality, that has a tendency to push people away too. Yeah, I think the industry is going to just continue to evolve, really. I think like in any industry, there's there's trends that happen. And for a while there in video, it's really quick. And now I think you're going to start seeing longer form stuff. Well, the big brands do that really well. Yeah, yeah they do. We've watched a couple of great ones from Toyota. Yeti is one of our favorite brands that we'll look at the stuff that they put out there. And generally, it tends to be a little bit longer form and a little more documentary style. And sometimes it doesn't even speak specifically to a product. It's just focusing on their brand pillars and yeah, who they are. Doesn't. Right. People don't want, I mean, people are savvy nowadays. They, they know what a commercial looks like. Yeah. They know. They know when they're being sold yeah. to. At that point, it's really important for the, the business to understand the purpose that the brand stands for in the minds of their audience. Nike is not just an athletic shoe. It is a mindset of just do it and how that can transcend into so many different aspects of our lives that if you just thought of Nike as an athletic shoe, a lot of people would never wear it because they're not athletic or they don't relate to playing tennis or basketball or whatever. But when you think just do it and what that can push us all to do, it makes more sense. And if you just like look at some of the projects we've worked on, I can tell right away, obviously because I was on them, but just from the quality and just from the storytelling of having direction, having you know brand standards, working with marketing people, us handling marketing, handling creative, having just that idea going into it. These are, this is the story we need to tell. These are the brand touch points we need to hit opposed to, you know, me just showing up and being like, okay, let's shoot something and hope it's good. It does happen to us where we walk into a situation and can tell right away that the client has not considered investing in a marketing plan or they've thought about a content strategy or what brand pillars, touch points they want to hit. And they basically come and say, we just want a video. That's great. We can do that for you. But a lot of times we'll sort of redirect them if we can and say, you might want to backtrack a little bit and think about who you are, what you want to convey. Right. We can come in and like Matt said, he, you know, he can shoot beautiful pieces for you. But again, speaking to shelf life, it might not work for you in another several months or a year if you're not thinking ahead of time about what you want it to speak to. We would tell people all the time, the more you can do ahead of time to decide what you want to showcase in the video from a brand perspective, it just makes our job so much easier. And the type of creative we can put out is so much more fun. We have way more fun <laughs> on projects when we know um, what the end goal is and what, what message they want to convey. When you work with a client, do you coach them on 
this tone of voice is going to give this impression or maybe tell me a little bit about when you first start working with someone who's a new client, what mm -hmm. are the things that you are asking them about so that you know how to best prepare how you're going to deliver the material that they're asking you to, to present for them? Well, I want to know how formal or informal the company is. So if, um, if they are informal, then I might use contractions. So it's instead of it is, mm -hmm. or, you know, don't instead of do not, this kind of thing. And if they have a particular type of audience, you know, how old are those people? Where do they usually hang out? What are their values? Who are they? And you can usually get to where you need to be once you have that kind of a background. And it's a little easier to connect with the copy once you know what their intention is. Who are they trying to reach and why? What are the tenants, I guess, of their company? Why are they doing what they do? And then you can sort of get to the emotion that you need to get to. But at the same time, most of the people that come to me, they kind of already know this. So I'm not, I'm not reinventing the wheel or anything like that. <laughs> sure. Um, but I would imagine there's an element that you need to understand so that you can deliver on what it is that they're anticipating and expecting from you. Oh, and definitely. If, and if they come yeah. to you and, and you start asking those questions and they have a blank look on their face. <laughs> yeah, you would hope they know these things. But, right, yeah. right. But I find in the work that I do, that understanding who their clients are is often one of the biggest stumbling points and yeah. and really getting to know who they are and so this is just another layer of understanding as a business if you're going to start putting out videos which is very important in a in a tactical a tactical plan anymore is to have mm -hmm. have videos out there you need to understand what is the sound quality going to be what is the how do the words need to be delivered? And it goes beyond just understanding my voice is playful and or serious and somber. Mm -hmm. It's now you have to be able to match up that voice that you're going to hire to voice over the video to those, those tone words that you're using to define your brand. Yeah, that's very true. And part of it is what emotion do you want the listener to feel? So each company has their why, and they have their typical audience, the mm -hmm. people that they really want to reach. Now, when you get right down to it, what does that script say? So when I'm reading a script and I'm performing it for a client, generally a lot of the hints of how they want me to perform it is in the words of the script. If there aren't contractions, if there is more uh, casualness to the, uh, to the read, to the the text, if they want more pauses. It, it depends on what tone of voice they really want. And a, like I said, a lot of the hints are in the script itself. And what, what words do they emphasize? What words do they repeat? What's the important, the important verbs, actually, the important actions within the script? So those are important things that I need to pay attention to. But also, I need to think about what can my voice do to help them communicate their brand. Right. And I am the first to say that I am not the right voice for every brand. I am about the furthest thing from urban and hip that you could possibly get. <laughs> <laughs> so, so if you want urban and hip, you do not come to me. <laughs> Generally, no. 
if you want smooth and warm and comforting and, and friendly and, you know, that kind of thing, I can do that in a heartbeat. <laughs> right. No, I, uh, and I can be formal or informal. It doesn't really matter which, you know, I can do both. But, you know, there are things I do well and things that I, I would not be hired to do. And I'm aware of that. So you know your audience very well. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, you know, and it reminds me of when I worked at the university and I was involved with a lot of our, our major production one of the first things that we would always do when we'd get ready for this is, you know, our agency would go through and give us maybe five or six different voiceover. You know, if it was predominantly voiceover, if it was an actress that was going to be on on camera, mm -hmm. we would also listen to her voice or his voice, depending, to make sure that it that they could deliver the message in the way that we that we needed it to be delivered, and it was a sound that felt right. Mm -hmm. Right. I'm, yep. I'm using air quotes here that yes. people can't see, but <laughs> you do, you listen to all of those and you're like, as somebody who was representing a brand at that point, you could pretty quickly say, no, that person is not, you know, I, I can't see that, that voice being what we need to convey with this message, mm -hmm. or you'd gravitate immediately to one or two of them. And then it would become so difficult to figure out which one was the better fit. It was a fascinating process because honestly, until I did, went through that, I had never really, I had never really gotten into the weeds of how do you select? Mm -hmm. Yeah. How, how do you select that and really feel confident in the tone that you're putting forward? Because it is delivered in the tone of the voice. Um, yeah, you don't a lot want of somebody cases... who's got the screeching sound, or you know, <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. maybe there is a time when you do want that, but but you have to know what your end result needs to be, and then come back to finding a voice that fits that. And the same is true for music, and oh, totally, yeah, and for like you said, those those the ear cons, the ear cons. Thank you, yeah, um, <laughs> because those become so quickly associated with a brand. They in do. a way yeah. that, you know, I wonder sometimes if, if some of them that we know so well, if that was an intended thing or if it became kind of a, you know what, this is, this is becoming more popular than what we realized. Let's leverage this. Yeah. I, you know, in some cases I'm not sure, but I know for instance, that the NBC logo was actually um, uh, tonally needed, I guess, in the early days of television. It yes. was something that they used to start things off. It just became synonymous with the channel and people recognized it. It's human psychology. It's really interesting. We glom onto things that we want to remain constant because we like constant. We like things that are consistent. Yep. And what'll happen is that you'll find you recognize a brand based on their sound almost as much if not more quickly than you will by their visual branding mm -hmm. and the interesting thing about branding as far as audio is concerned is that it doesn't matter what language you speak so a visual would be in wherever whatever language it is in whatever country it is but if you heard it you could use the same audio throughout all of your global marketing with maybe some tweaks or changes and people would recognize it and you wouldn't need to print anything. <laughs> exactly. Very true. So it, yeah. It's pretty universal. It's one of those things that, that hits us really hard in the heart immediately. 
really fast. Mm -hmm. So it induces emotion. And we don't buy based on logic. We have never bought based on logic. We buy based on emotions and then justify it with logic. (laughs) Exactly. So when you can reach someone emotionally really quickly, like a shorthand, like it gets there in a second, that is something that you really want to use to your advantage. And, you know, like anything, you can use it for good or you can use it for evil. (laughs) Very true. There is a level of purpose and intentionality that goes into understanding that customer experience. And that, you know, by nature of the title of my podcast is obviously a very important thing to me. Would you agree that that as an organization is planning out or looking at their experience mantras and experience models that they're going to put in place, that that there is a level of importance to that intentionality in what they're doing? 100%. 100%. Yes. Because for, for a number of reasons. First and foremost, if we don't have intention behind our actions, they can easily be misunderstood. Number two, if we don't have intention behind our interactions, we default to the most common interactions or the base interactions, which usually are not us showing up as our best self. If we don't have intention behind our interactions, what usually means is that we're kind of haphazardly throwing things together. So any hope of our customers or the people we're interacting with having a consistent experience over time evaporates almost immediately. One of the things that I have loved best about sharing my message with the world is the number of business owners and employees who have come to me after reading my book or hearing one of my speeches and saying, Joey, I have a spring in my step again. I'm excited to go to work. I'm excited to do what I do. I had the chance a few weeks ago to speak to the top 10 ophthalmologists in Canada. So they brought together the top 10 ophthalmologists from all over Canada for a day-long workshop about how can we create a better patient experience. And one of them sent me an email the other day. So this was about two weeks ago that I did the presentation. They sent an email to me two days ago and said, Joey, I have to tell you, I am more excited about being a doctor than I've been in the last 10 years. And the reason I'm more excited is after surgery day the other day, on my way home, as you had recommended in our workshop, I had a call list of all the patients I had operated on. And I called all of them while I was driving home just to check in and see how they were feeling. Joey, for the first time in a decade, I connected with the people who I had performed surgery on. Because this person literally does 100 surgeries a day. Okay? It's cataract surgery. So it only takes a few minutes. They do 100 a day. They called 10 people. So only 10% of their customers, 10% of their patients. And it made them reconnect to why they went to medical school. It made them reconnect to why they became a surgeon. I've experienced this time and time again across all industries you can imagine. People who start thinking more proactively about the customer experience they're creating feel more excited to go to work. They feel more excited to serve their customers. The things that really were the driver for them getting into business in the first place or getting into this industry or starting this company or coming to work for this company. All of those reasons start flooding back when they connect to the humanity of the people they're serving. That's awesome. I've seen that a lot, having worked in in hospitals and health systems for the bulk of my career. It's true when when you can connect back with the people that you're serving in a healthcare space, especially, 
it fills you up personally in a way that is difficult to achieve in other industries, I think. If you're selling widgets, I'm not sure that you're, you know, that you get that kind of personal fulfillment in the same way as what you do when you've talked to a family member whose child just had surgery or whose child is being, is going home after a long stay or, you know, a loved one has been in a hospital for a period of time and what you've done or the impact that you've had on their care has allowed them to be able to go home for a holiday. Absolutely. And I, I agree with you, Amy, in a, in a medical uh, scenario, it's easier, but sadly, it's more disconnected. I know. Right? So it's easier it to find it, but you've worked in that space. I know folks that have worked in that space. I've consulted in that space. It's harder to get. I would posit that the widget maker can have the same amount of connection though, because nine times out of 10, the widget maker is super excited about those widgets. They're True. super excited about that world. And there are people in the world that are just as excited as they are. And those are the ones you want to seek out as customers, right? Um, here's the deal. Not every customer interaction is going to be life-changing. That's just reality. Let, I am under no false illusion that if we focus on customer experience, suddenly that will be the highlight of their life. No, no, no. But with one of my clients, they, they, we worked together and they came up with this uh, mantra, which I thought was really valuable. We want to be the best interaction they've had today. That's, That's it. That's amazing. We just want to be the best interaction you had today. With all the places you do business, with all the places you went around, you stopped on the way to work and you got some gas, you went and got your lunch, now you're back home and you have to stop at the grocery store to get some food, and then you've got a phone call with the cable company. We want to be the best interaction of your day. That's it. And what it did is it reduced the pressure on their employees to rock the world and instead said, can we use this little moment? these few minutes that we have together to create a meaningful interaction, to create something that feels special, to create something that brings a smile to the face of the person who is kind enough to do business with us. It changes the conversation. And I believe, and the reason I got into this is I believe that the bar for customer experience is lying on the ground globally. We expect a horrible customer experience. We expect it to be abysmal. You don't have to do that much to stand out. You don't have to do that much to be remarkable. That is worthy of somebody talking about or making a remark about. Sometimes just a little spring in your step, an extra smile, a moment of caring is enough to make that person say, that's the best experience I've had in years. How cool is that? What an amazing opportunity that every single one of us has, regardless of where you fall in the organization. This isn't just a message for business owners and CEOs. You can be a frontline employee who is brand new, who's only been at the organization for a week, a day. And you can say, my job is to create smiles. My job is to make people go, that is not what I was expecting today. My job is to make people feel better when they hang up the call than they did when they dialed the number or feel better when they walk out the door than they did when they came in the door or feel better when they open the package than before they opened the package whatever it may be what are we doing just to move the needle a little bit it doesn't have to be earth shattering hey it's amy does this episode have you wondering if you know your brand as well as you could maybe you're thinking 
How can I have more clarity around my business purpose and its mission, vision, and values? Or what drives my brand personality and how does that impact my business? First, I want you to know you are not alone. I see this a lot. It is easy to jump headfirst into developing marketing tactics, thinking you can just figure out the rest as you go. But there comes a time when you need to hit that pause button and get really clear on what your brand stands for and how you make your target audience the central character in your brand story. If you're thinking, this sounds so familiar, then you and I should have a chat about clearly defining your brand and story. Just head over to amyaustinmarketing.com and send me a note. I hope to speak with you soon. This has been the Pursuit of Purpose podcast presented by Austin Marketing. If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to leave a rating and review on your favorite podcast player. Head over to amyaustinmarketing.com for links and resources mentioned in today's show, as well as ways to subscribe and connect with Amy. Thanks for listening.